Hi everybody, Lee here. The next couple episodes are going to be a conversation that I had with the writer and thinker Timon Klein about the subject of critical race theory and the church. Uh, it was a fascinating conversation. I'm glad he took the time to speak with me about it. And I hope you guys enjoy this conversation as well. Stay tuned to the end of the episode for our contact points. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear them. Uh, and without any further ado, here's part one of my conversation with Timon Klein. Yeah, thank you for tuning in. It's more than a podcast. Yeah. Inexhaustible episodes, God's vast. Glorify him as we broadcast the Lord's grace and God's wrath. More serious than a bomb blast. Full disclosure inside the title. No surprises, simply put, guys with Bibles. Yeah, just some regular reborn reformed cats. If it's in the Bible, then they're gonna speak on that. Cause the scripture is the final word. Okay. Competing ideas, quite absurd. Of this, you can be quite assured. Yeah. We were lost in the dark. Of night immersed in sin, but then the light emerged. It was the Son of God, divine Christ, that shines light. The word in Genesis that assigned life in hindsight and was revealed through the prophets and apostles. We magnify and expound on the power of the gospel. Yeah, yeah. I'm listening to guys with Bibles, studying scripture, discussing doctrine, glorifying God. With your hosts, Sean. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Guys with Bibles, and I'm Lee, and I'm here with a very special guest, Timon Klein. Uh, we're here to talk about a very important uh, and timely subject that I would say Mr. Klein is pretty close to an expert on from what I've read, so I'm really excited to to chat with him and, and learn from him. So, uh, Timon, would you want to give us a little more information about yourself? Yeah, um, I, I can give a brief brief bio. Uh, that's always sort of awkward to do about yourself, but brief bio, and then I can I can kind of tell you how I got into this uh, subject matter. Perfect. So um, I um, am talking to you now from Philadelphia, where me and my wife live. Uh, no kids or dogs, and um, I'm originally from from Memphis, Tennessee, is where I was born, and uh, my wife's from Florida. Um, grew up. Uh, partly in Tennessee, but my parents were uh, Southern Baptist missionaries in Senegal, West Africa. So part of my childhood was spent there. And then um, after that, uh, lived in a, lived in Ohio for a while, did undergrad there um, where I met my wife. And then we moved out to Philadelphia, the Philadelphia, New Jersey area about five years ago, um, where I, I did a uh, law degree at Rutgers Law School and a master's of religion at Westminster Theological Seminary here in Philadelphia. Um concurrently so that took about five years i just finished both of those up this past spring um and it was uh, i can kind of get into the subject matter here a bit um it was during that time that i came to uh be acquainted with uh, our our topic of, of critical theory um especially during during um, my first couple years of law school um as we will talk about there's there's a reason that it's prevalent in law schools but um so that's why i came to start um, understanding what this ideology and way of thinking was, um, especially in the critical legal studies movement, their influence, which is still heavy in uh, legal departments across the country, um, as is critical race theory, which was spawned out of critical legal studies. Um, so I came into contact with that um, as I was doing work um, on legal theory and various policy classes, um, which was all fine. I found it interesting and a little bit um, 
strange, uh, but, but fascinating kind of in a perverse way. Uh, but I really didn't get too concerned about it until I started seeing similarities in a broader evangelicalism, um, probably around uh, 2016 or so, started noticing um, some, uh, some familiar looking ideas being peddled around, uh, ways of talking. Um, and that especially has, has culminated since, I would say, at least in the Southern Baptist Convention, which makes up a big part of evangelicalism, uh, with Resolution 9 last summer. Um, mm -hmm. and, and has, I think the discussion has really gotten rolling since then within the SBC. And then, uh, nationally, the discussion has grown, um, with intensity over the past couple years. Um, and even more so just recently with uh, the Trump administration kind of putting it on everyone's radar. Um, so now everyone's really talking about it. So it's been, it's kind of a fascinating thing for me to watch um, because when I first started looking to this, I thought I may have been getting into dipping into a, a conspiracy theory of some kind and that I was the, the only one thinking about it. And now that that's, I, I've been disabused of that idea, but I was always a little concerned that I was getting into something strange um, but, but now, you know, it's, it's, everyone's kind of talking about it and that's been, uh, it's been very weird to go from reading obscure books to then, you know, turning on, uh, the evening news and talk shows and, and hearing the words critical race theory uttered. So, um, that's kind of my very brief story of how I, I got into this, just started reading a bunch of primary texts and, um, uh, over the past several years and have then tried to, uh, in my own way and small contribution address this uh, specifically as it's manifesting within Christian circles. And uh, that includes Presbyterians and Catholics and Anglicans and everyone. So um, yeah, that would, that would be bring bring us up to the present. That's, that's fantastic. Um, see, this is, I was so glad when you reached out to us on Twitter uh, and mentioned this topic um, because um, it, this is something that we really haven't addressed all that much on this show. So we, I mean, we're technically, we're, we're basically like a, a Bible study done over a podcast. And we haven't touched on mm -hmm. many issues of the day um, in our time. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think for myself, at least, partly the reason why is because I feel as if I am not well-read enough on this subject to be able to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And because it is so mm -hmm. recent to most of us uh, just mm -hmm. out here in the world, um, like you said, just really, it's, it's come into the spotlight since 2016. And there's a, there's a thing in culture, I think, that, that you can only opine on subjects like this if you have a certain level of melanin in your skin. So, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I, I'm, ex I'm excited to talk with you about this tonight. And I hope that you, uh, I, I'm very confident that you will enlighten our, our audience about what even critical theory broadly is, as well as, mm -hmm the particular application of particular race theory in the culture and in, in mm -hmm. the church, because um, I'm certainly convinced and in, in many of my brothers and sisters on the bar network are convinced that this is a, a harm to the church and to our culture. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I would say you would agree with that as well, based on your uh, article at founders. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, th I think it is a, uh, it's a very dangerous thing. Um, especially for, for Christians to get into. I mean, that's my main concern is the health of the church and uh, the main impetus for, for writing on this and, and talking about it. Um, I think it's very dangerous, and I think you're, you can already um, see signs of its, uh, its fruit of, of being around just for 
like you said, just for a little while. Um, it has a, a capacity to do real damage real fast. Um, and I think you can already see some of that. And I, uh, not everyone may share this view, but I have a, a particularly bleak outlook um, on this for the near near future of what it's going to do to uh, some of our largest denominations uh, in evangelicalism. Um, I, I hope that I am wrong on most of my predictions. I've written about this some, um, but I don't think I will be based on the trajectory of things right now. So, so yes, I and the, the damage it can do even applies uh, not just to, you know, denominational politics and, and structure and all of that, but to, um, to everyday, you know, Christians' lives um, in their small groups and their Sunday school classes, their uh, church services and worship, everything um, can be affected adversely by it, um, in my opinion. So I, I would say that's exactly right. So, so to begin, uh, can you just give us a, a solid definition of what critical theory is and specifically critical race theory, which is just one yeah. part of a, of a larger organism mm-hmm. of critical theory, right? Uh, that, that is correct, yes. Uh, critical theory is just the sort of umbrella term for the family of all this, uh, this very area of disciplines and focus. of all of these offshoots or manifestations of it that have developed over, especially over the last uh, 50 years or so. There's been more and more uh, focus areas that have emerged in this. It's very, um, the part of the difficulty with critical theories in general is it's, it is very difficult to, uh, to define them. Um, it's hard to give this kind of terse definition. So what I typically do, uh, we, we can go one of two ways. I can, I can give you first the what are the basic tenets of, of any critical social theory that will be present in, in any of them you encounter, regardless of the focus area. Um, but I can also get a, give a bit of the, the genealogy of kind of the, the development of the school of thought. Um, either one of those is sometimes helpful. Well, let's, um, let's go with the so development you, route, because I think we will learn a lot yeah, about sure. it by seeing where it comes from. Yeah. So uh, what I'll do is just give very brief uh, you know, kind of history of, of the, this way of thinking, and then we'll get into the the core tenets and the the offshoots, specifically critical race theory, which is what is likely on everyone's mind right now, uh, especially in in America. So, the critical theory, by all accounts, um, you know, is a begins uh, to to crop up and and really materializes in the early twentieth century. So you have a sort of post Marxist period where um, Marxist theorists are, Marx is, you know, long dead, of course, and there's been no proletarian revolution in industrialized nations like Germany. Um, the, the big question is why the, the working class never developed class consciousness in those uh, areas, and in fact, uh, went for fascism instead in many cases. Um, so that is, is bugging Marxist theorists and uh, in the, the 1920s and 30s, you have um, the, the school of neo-Marxism that, that comes about because of this, which um, most noteworthy amongst the neo-Marxists is Antonio Gramsci, um, his, his prison notebooks when he was imprisoned in Mussolini's Italy for uh, being a communist um, are highly influential in this area of thought. And his uh, basic answer to some of those questions that Marxists were asking was, the the reason that the proletariat has not the working class has not risen up in rebellion is because 
the uh, capitalist and Western culture stifles their utopian imaginations and class consciousness. Um, so they're, they're thinking capitalist thoughts is basically their problem. Um, so in some ways, he flips Marx's own understanding of how culture and the base structure or the, the means of production and the economic and material conditions relate. And he thinks the, the culture, cultural elements uh, go hand in hand, of course, with the economic system, but the cultural elements are what the, the, the hegemony of the dominant class is what keeps down the working class. And so what is required is a counter hegemony to combat um, the, the dominating ways of thinking in industrialized countries. So around that same time and feeding off of Gramsci as well as uh, Georgie Lukacs is another neo-Marxist theorist, uh, you have the, the founding of the uh, Frankfurt School for Social Research at the Goethe University uh, that's in the, the early 20s that gets going as a Marxist research center. Um, and out of, out of that group of initial scholars that found the Frankfurt School, it's a very interdisciplinary um, you know, school of, of research. They're doing all kinds of things. But the big names are Max Horkheimer, Theodore Adorno, uh, Herbert Marcuse, and Eric Fromm. Some people may have, and then later Jürgen Habermas and Walter Benjamin. People may have heard some of these names, depending on what they've, they've read. So all of those theorists are taking up the neo-Marxist uh, revisions from people like Gramsci and, and Lukacs and looking back to what they will refer to as younger or early Marx, his, his philosophical manuscripts of 1844 and some other texts um, that have, are heavy in Hegelianism. Um, and, they, and then they mix into all of that a lot of, uh, they're kind of the first group to really take uh, Sigmund Freud's ideas seriously at a social level. Um, and they also take up Max Weber's thinking and, so, and some other things as well and kind of mix this all in to develop this, uh, what comes to be called critical theory. Um, they're especially concerned in the, in the post-Nazism years after the fall of the Third Reich with understanding um, what they would call the authoritarian personality. Um, they're still trying to make sense of Marxism's failures and excesses, especially in the Soviet Union, as those are being increasingly publicized. Um, and then they're looking at and uh, critiquing Western culture, the, uh, the media control, the sexual mores, the, the family structure, on and on, um, that are uh, oppressing the, the working class. Um, so they developed this form of social critique, which is now called critical theory. Um, and they would describe it as being a, a critique of society with the specific aim of, of um, affecting Socio-political change and emancipation from um, the the dominant ideologies uh, in the culture, and so you do this through exposing what they saw as the the lies um, of the in the narratives and the myths and the values of Western culture, which are really just disguised bids for power, a way to to dominate the working class. Um, so they want, they think they're unveiling the real world to all of us by showing us how much of a lie, um, all of the Western society is. It's really nothing more than a cover for capitalist dominance. Um, and the, the norms and narratives that are told by the dominant culture, um, is really just to justify uh, their own dominance over, over the oppressed class. Um, and so then as you, as you kind of go along in between the, the 30s, 40s, 50s, and now, you also have the emergence of postmodernism, um, and especially 
thinkers like Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida, um, the, the kind of schools of post or deconstructionism um, are highly influential as they are on lots of disciplines, but influential on in critical theory as well. And they, in many ways, um, plug some of the conceptual and linguistic gaps in critical theory. Um, so as I will describe it often, to use a Marxist analogy imperfectly, is Marxism or neo-Marxism serves as kind of the base or the infrastructure. And then postmodern theory is, it serves as kind of the superstructure over top, uh, which is supporting the, the integrity of the base. Um, and so now today, I mean, this is moving very quickly through it, but the, today critical theories um, have, have continued to grow in their, um, their focus areas. So they've become more, um, uh, more focused on and more rigid kind of in some of what they're, they're doing. And so they've multiplied. So now today you have, uh, you know, something like queer theory, you have post-colonial theory, you have critical pedagogy, family theory. Uh, I mentioned critical legal studies earlier, and then you, you of course have critical race theory, right? So those are the, uh, and there, and there's many more, but those are some of the big ones that you will often hear about. Um, so that, that kind of brings us up to where we are today. And I can talk about the, the, uh, the tenets that will kind of characterize any of these uh, versions of, of critical social theory, um, in, unless you have any questions in between. No, uh, not at all. But I can see the threads developing into the, the uh, race aspect, because if there is this mm -hmm. overarching narrative about oppression, then mm -hmm. we can start uh, applying that to the history of race relations, not only in the U.S., but really yeah. around the world and turn that into a yeah. talking point. Yeah. Is that kind of the direction it goes? Yeah, abso absolutely. I mean, it segues nicely into uh, the what, what is the first tenet or the first tenet I list of, of any critical theory, which is setting up a basic oppressor-oppressed uh, dichotomy. So it's Marxist conflict theory. Um, but what you, what you do with in uh, any critical theory, which are, which are often and not wrongly referred to as cultural Marxism, um, is you, you, you know, insert into the oppressor and oppressed dichotomy, uh, whatever thing it is you're looking at. So you can, um, talk about, you know, they all believe society is stratified along lines of maybe it's race or class or gender or physical ability, um, any of those things. And your, the particular, uh, disciplines will focus on one or more of those. Uh, increasingly they seem, seem to blend all the time. Um, but that is, that's the basic dichotomy you have to set up, um, for, to begin your analysis. And that's just uh, assumed as a matter of course. Um, and the, the oppressor and oppressed dichotomy works through the Gramsci's cultural hegemony. So the, um, the, the way someone is oppressed is not necessarily through physical force. Um, in fact, likely not in our society, though, though sometimes maybe, and not even necessarily uh, economic, which, which can also be there as well. They may think that also, uh, but primarily through the um, cultural dominance of the dominant class. And so in uh, critical race theory, that's going to be uh, white people, right? And probably they'll list uh, white males in particular. Um, and mm -hmm. it is going to be a discussion of how um, white people um, oppress non-white people, the, the other, as they'll refer to it, um, by, you know, propping up certain values that are presented as neutral and, and good and obvious 
Uh, but really with those values and those, uh, you know, historical narratives and those, um, myths about maybe our, uh, founding ideology or aspirations, really what those are doing is ensuring that the white male hegemony maintains its power. So then your task is to look into how all that is operating. But that's, that is what's kind of assumed at the beginning. So then their goal is to, uh, as they will put it, problematize and deconstruct and then dis dismantle uh, those oppressive narratives, norms, and structures um, because they think that they are all lies. They're really uh, concealed bids for power. So that, so that flows in nicely to exactly what you were saying. You can already see the, the thread of how that, uh, that applies um, in the critical race, race theory department. That that word dismantle is pretty. It seems to be pretty uh, core to to the goal of somebody who is uh, subscribing to this critical race theory. You said something there. You may, if you wouldn't mind drilling into it a little bit, mm -hmm. the dismantle aspect. So the whole goal yeah. then, it would seem, would be to eliminate or take apart the mm -hmm. oppressive history of a certain thing, whatever you're applying the theory to, what is it then replaced with once you dismantle? Mm. Yeah. Is that prescribed? The, um, very, very badly. Um, this is, is a, uh, something that, you know, Mar Marx himself, uh, is, is often accused of, which is, you know, that there's very little discussion of what the Marxist utopia looks like. Uh, there's some, but very little. Um, the point is just that we know everything we have now is bad and it needs to be, you know, overthrown and built from the ground up. And so the, the dismantlement aspect, I mean, the, the ultimate goal of any um, uh, critical social theory is liberation, right? It's liberation from these mm. constraints. Um, it's the assertion of radical human autonomy. Um, and it's, it's the, the idea of becoming, you know, fully humanized and you're being stifled in that way by uh, the oppression, oppressive structures of society, um, the institutions, the, and the values. And, and as you mentioned, the historical narratives, all of those are keeping you from being liberated. Um, so the, the ultimate goal is to get free of them. And, um, what you do after that, I mean, is, is very difficult to say from their perspective, but, um, it's it's not really necessary to them in most cases to present a positive case for that. It is just uh, very urgent and apparent to them that liberation is needed, and therefore you must dismantle the the constraints. The, you must throw off your you know your your chains that are uh, holding mm -hmm. you back from this full realization of your humanity and everything that it is. So one more question on this before we pivot to the church, because that's really where I want to. Yeah focus um so mm -hmm. like let's say i take the idea say the one that popped up this summer defund the police mm -hmm. this seems like mm -hmm. it like this idea fits in really nicely with this theory um mm -hmm. because we're going yes. we we've we've deemed law enforcement as racist as an oppressive mm -hmm. armed force in our neighborhood mm -hmm. and we're just going to defund the police uh which will take away their ability to further oppress us by having fewer resources to use against mm -hmm. us and then what do we replace it with once once law enforcement as it stands now ceases to exist because it, it yeah. can't support itself financially yeah uh, that seems to kind of fit with that paradigm yeah and no it, it absolutely <laughs> does um, no, no no it absolutely does i mean before before black lives matter uh scrubbed their website of their what we believe statement 
which I wrote about oh, before yeah, they, right. they eliminated it. Um, I wrote about that in a three-part series at, at Founders. So you can, um, everyone can go check out. So you'll, you can still see a lot of the content through what I wrote. And I'm sure someone's archived it, yeah. but before I'll they did that, that I mean, show notes to send yeah. people that direction. Yeah, I try to unpack a lot of the um, the maybe obscure kind of niche terms that are used in or were used in their statement of belief that uh, you know to the to the untrained eye you could easily pass over, but they're very significant. They're saying something about their um, what they believe, and the the point is that if you read the statement, it's uh, undeniable that the the influence of critical race theory is there um, and, and driving. Uh, their thoughts. So the and the defund the police idea is is actually not new. I mean, you can find law review articles from people that are uh, uh, practitioners, so to speak, of critical race theory in the academy from years ago, ta- kind of floating those ideas around. Um, and it's exactly as you say. The uh, the the police, um, you know, are now are just the concept. So it's not just a uh, you know, very few people would disagree with some kind of at least abstract idea of police reform, of, of making uh, police more effective and, and better for communities and, and so on and so on. Um, but that's not what they're talking about. It is the uh, elimination of, of police generally because the concept, they will say, is really um, a vestige of, of you know, slave-owning culture or something like that, some kind of um, thing that traces back to the dominance of, of whites over blacks. And they will um, point to that and say, you know, this is why it never has worked for the black community. And um, will and and as as I mentioned already, you know, their their solutions, their replacement theories are always very half baked. I mean, the the funniest one is, of course, the New York Times article that suggested uh, su- substituting for police the uh, you know rapid response social workers they called them, and no one knows what that is. But that was that was it. That was kind of the end of the theory of what you would re- replace it with. Um, so that that is always you know having a good solution is not always that that necessary um, to people that are, are thinking this way. Um, if I can, I'll I'll just throw out the the other three really quick um, oh, yeah, tenets of critical do. theory beyond the. Uh, so you have the oppressor oppressed economy. Um, I already spoke about briefly the the end goal of any critical social theory is, is liberation, especially political liberation from the constraints um, of, of whatever they're looking at. So if you're in you know, the queer theory department, you're going to be looking at uh, gender norms and sexual norms and, and all of that. If you're in um, you know, uh, something like post-colonial theory, you're going to be talking about um, the, the dominance of white culture over indigenous cultures uh, and indigenous ways of knowing their epistemology, all of that. And so you've got to, to uh, liberate yourself from these things. But the, the other two tenets are you're always going to have discussion about a false consciousness, which is another particularly Marxist idea. So what you, what people need in order to be liberated and to, to recognize uh, what the world really is, is a critical consciousness. And that is, uh, that is what being woke is. That's where the, you know, the, the colloquial term now that's thrown around, that's what it's re- really referring to. So you are awakened to the power dynamics and structures of the world and, most importantly, your relationship to them. Um, so that's why, you know, oppressors, uh, which if, if you're in critical race theory, you're going to say that, you know, white people are necessarily complicit in the oppression of white supremacy. 
um, by their existence within a white dominant culture and its white institutions. Um, and so being critically conscious is being aware of that and, and understanding whether you are uh, an oppressor in this context or an oppressed person, and then um, being, um, how, as they will say, being self-reflexive about that. So examining in every situation your uh, your your position in relation to the power dynamics and then the other people around you um, according to the power dynamics. And then the, the final tenet that's usually uh, prevalent in any critical social theory is has to do with with the language um, and this is um, this is kind of a combination of, of Marxist and postmodern uh, thought uh, rearing its ugly head and, and this one but the predominant one that's that's relevant for our discussions today is the this idea of power knowledge which comes from uh, Michel Foucault and it's the taking very seriously the in a strange way the idea that knowledge is power you know that's a, a saying we have um, mm-hmm. take it takes it very seriously and that the the control over the ways of knowing the control over the epistemolo- epistemological outlook and the knowledge you glean from the world uh, which is always filtered through a, the lens of the hegemony um, but that dictates um, the and, and interacts with the language the way we speak about things and then whoever has control of the language then not only has influence over the the accessibility of knowledge but has real power because remember the real power we're talking about here is cultural and structural and normative and all of those things so they're very, always very interested in the way things are talked about. Um, so one example would be Robin DiAngelo often uh, criticizes, she has an essay about this, the, what they will call the discourse of individualism. And so individualism is not a, a real value. It's a, uh, a lie of white Western society um, used to, to oppress others. Um, but the way we talk about things is influenced by it, and it perpetuates that lie all the time. Um, and the way we talk about the, you know, maybe the, the history of our country or the ideal American kind of being the, the cowboy and all of that, all of those things are, um, you know, reinforcing the, the dominance of the, the white male hegemony. Um, so those are, those are the three things, the oppressor, oppressed, or four things, oppressor, oppressed dichotomy, the false consciousness, uh, your, your language uh, issues, and then the final goal of, of liberation. Those are the kind of the four tenets I set up of of any critical social theory that you're going to be able to, to pick them out to, uh, controlling for the particular subject matter. Mercy. Well, you've, so far you've done a, a really great job at summarizing these big ideas into a, a sort of a bite-sized format for us here. So thank you already. Um, let's take these, these points that you've outlined here. And uh, maybe you can show us how these are, are being applied to the church now and what kind of damage that's causing. Um, yeah. And I'll say I first noticed these kinds of things uh, creeping in um, back during the um, – it was after the MLK 50 conference mm-hmm. yeah. um, that the Southern Baptists did. Uh, now, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure probably things were happening before that, and maybe you can enlighten me on that as well. But um, maybe just walk us through how these points of – of deconstruction and liberation and all these kinds of things are being used in the church mm-hmm. right now, maybe even weaponized uh, to put one, yeah. one word on it. Yeah. Um, no, I, I also uh, would say that, that MLK 50 was a, a turning point of sorts. 
um, in terms of, of how we started talking about uh, issues of race, which is particularly pertinent in the in the Southern Southern Baptist Convention, given the given their um, their history, which they they've acknowledged mm-hmm. as a denomination, um, right? Is somewhat less so in the PCA, but because it's a, a predominantly Southern denomination, the PCA as well um, has. I think sure. they've also acknowledged that as a uh, as a denomination in, at multiple times. Um, but right. then the, you know, last year was the, was resolution nine, which really tells you about where, um, even though I think it blindsided a lot of people shows you where the, mm-hmm. the denomination is in terms of thinking about this, or at least certain leaders. Um, and what the, the big problem with, with resolution nine, there were mixed feelings about it. Um, but it was a, you know, presented, uh, what I would say characterize as a, softer form of, of critical theory. I, I don't think it presented it accurately, um, but it, 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 it claims that you're able to use critical theory and critical race theory and intersectionality, um, which I haven't talked about, but we can. Um, sure. But those, those things, as uh, what the resolution says, is they are analytical tools used for um, analysis of society that can be uh, easily apparently subordinated to the authority of scripture and therefore, you know, it's okay to, to use them. Um, now I would certainly critis- uh, wow. characterize critical theory as a worldview and indeed a, a religion. I think as critical theory has <clears throat> specifically critical race theory has manifested in what, uh, what James Lindsay, if you're familiar with him calls critical social justice, mm-hmm. um, as it's manifested there, I mean, the, the, I think he's made the case perfectly well that there, uh, all of the elements of a religion are present in, in what it does and, and how it, uh, interacts with the, the rest of society. So I would, I think of it that way, but the resolution nine presents it as this, you know, maybe kind of innocuous tool, um, almost like rhetorical tools or something, right? I mean, it's a, it's very strange the way it does it. And the, the real problem with that is it gives people license now to deal in this type of thinking, this type of language, this way of framing uh, certain issues um, with with impunity, uh, more or less. I mean, all they have to do is essentially tacitly affirm the uh, their fealty to scripture, all this kind of Southern Baptist caveats of you know its supremacy and, and all that. Um, but then they they are free essentially to. Uh, kind of work with this as much or as little as they want. Um, and there's very little recourse then to what, um, uh, to people who are troubled by that. So it's in my mind, the uh, resolution nine really um, exacerbated the issue because uh, it, it now has created a conflict in the denomination um, and the people who are evidently influenced by critical race theory or think there's an appropriate use for it, um, are able to back up their moves, the moves they're making with this denominational document. Um, so I think it was a, a, a bad, bad thing that, that happened. Um, and you're were, you were seeing the, the influence of critical race theory, of course, in the, in the public discourse writ large um, over issues of race. I mean, you're, you're talking about, um, you know, you have the Smithsonian Museum publishing that now removed diorama of what white supremacy is yeah so that Uh is i mean that is incontrovertibly the influence of critical race theory it's it's saying that things like the nuclear family which blm denounces as well 
uh, things like mm-hmm. individualism, the priority of the written word, priority of rationality. I mean, these things that we think are timeliness. I remember that being time, on there too. Timeliness is there as well. <laughs> Um, so all these these things that we would say are have have no relevance for the color of someone's skin. They're just they are just things that we value as you know uh, Americans or maybe maybe so Westerners, but um, are, are are relevant um, in connection to the uh, what color skin you are. Uh, but the but the you know Smithsonian, it was the museum for uh, National Museum for Amer- African American History, you know claimed that these were all the manifestations of white supremacy. And that is uh, a definitely a critical race theory way to look at those things. And what they're saying is, you know, white supremacy there is not being used as the KKK or the you know some mm-hmm. some alt right group or Aryan nations be- or or right none of those things that we would all recognize as as reprehensible um, examples of that kind of thinking of ethnic superiority. What they're talking about is the hegemonic uh, power of uh, and dominance of of white people in this country. So they will describe it as a white supremacist country because white people are, if you like, supreme, and everything everything is geared towards advantaging them. Um, whether it's our legal norms and procedure, uh, which is a big, uh, you know, cr- the critical race theory movement began by criticizing a lot of those those things. Um, or just your, you know, the idea of what a family structure should be. All of those are, are now wrapped up in, in, uh, this white supremacy, which all white people who benefit from that are necessarily complicit in and are therefore racist. So that's what racist means now. There, it's not, um, you know, uh, personal animus based on, uh, the, the color of someone's skin or ethnicity. It is complicity in the status quo, which is white dominance. So you, you've told to, to say that you can use that in your theology or church relations, um, as, as you know, people will be able to see, it's already very problematic because you come to the table, uh, with an air of suspicion and resentment. Um, and it's all based in the case of critical race theory on, uh, the assumption that the society is stratified along racial lines and that they, that one party is, disadvantaged structurally it's baked into the system um and one party is is not and that the party who's not has to account for that and um so now you know that's why the discussion of reparations has taken off is because of the influence of this type of thinking thanks everybody for listening be sure to check back next sunday for the conclusion of this really important conversation you can find us on our website, guyswithbibles.com. You can listen to audio of the episodes on there. You can also read our blogs as well. You should check us out on social media, at Guys With Bibles on both Twitter and Instagram. You should also check out Facebook and search Guys With Bibles. We have a page you can like there. You can also request to join our Facebook group. Uh, you can also email us at guyswbibles at gmail.com. And we heavily encourage you to send us any questions or comments. We'd love to have a conversation and dialogue going. So thank you in advance for your, uh, your time. And be sure to check back here again next Sunday for the conclusion of this conversation. Peace.
You can check out Guys with Bibles on our website, guyswithbibles.com. That's where you can listen to audio of the show, or you can read our blogs. It's all there at the website. Uh, But you should also check us out on the podcatcher of your choice uh, and subscribe. And you can also check us out on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Guys with Bibles. And we're also on Instagram at Guys with Bibles. While you're at it, you should go to the show notes and check out the rest of the Bar Network podcasts. And do yourself a favor by subscribing to those as well. You will thank us. This is Guys with Bibles, and we're out.